you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 35 is where we will be as we keep going through the book of Romans. Romans eleven thirty-three through 35, and I'll just read the verse 36 as well, because how can we leave it off even though we're going to save it, especially for next week. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew, and I believe we're on page 947 in that Bible. And you can keep it if you don't have one for yourself. It's our gift to you. Here's what it says. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It kind of sums up everything, doesn't it? Uh, it's one of those passages that you just read it and you feel like you can just sit down and go home. Because there it is. <laughs> this is all of God. This is all of God. It reminds me of, of what we looked at a couple of weeks ago as, as we took one week away from Romans and we looked at Psalm 131 and it said in verse 1 there, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And it just reminds us that there are things that are too great and too marvelous for us. And also that we are called to occupy ourselves sometimes with things that are high. Things that are great about God. And how do we know the difference? Well, it's because he's told us those things in his word. And so this is one of those passages where he has told us things about himself, about how we can't know everything about himself, and yet because he's told us that, we are called to discuss and to set our minds on the, the idea that we can't know and set our minds on everything that there is to know about God. Does that make sense? And so even in the fact that we can't comprehend him, we're called to try, <laughs> To try, not beyond the bounds of what Scripture says, not, not in terms of making stuff up and veering off into conjecture, but in terms of saying, let's look at what God has revealed about himself in Scripture so that we can appropriately understand who God is as God, who we are as not God, and our proper response to him of reverence and awe and worship. This passage that we're in is something of a, a capstone on all of these teachings that have come before. These past few uh, times that we've met together as we've been going through Romans chapter 11, I've tried to emphasize to you that Romans 11 is a difficult passage of Scripture to interpret. There are all kinds of different interpretations to it. If you want to know the correct one, then just listen to my last few sermons, all right? But he's acknowledging right here, yes, that was a joke. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> Even though, uh, yeah, okay. But all of this, all of this is meant by God to lead us here, not just to know some things about the future, 
not just to know the difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, not just to know that God has a plan to save Gentiles and a plan to save Jews and, and some of the things about how all of this might work out, not to just have certain opinions about eschatology. All of this is put here so that we can be humbled in the sight of God, so that we can recognize God has ways that are higher than our ways. God has thoughts that are higher than our thoughts. God has plans that we don't get to know until we see them happen. There's all kinds of things that the people who were around in Jesus' day obviously didn't understand from the Scriptures, even though they were written in the Scriptures. Do you see? All of the, what were they expecting when Jesus came? They were expecting, based on the Old Testament prophecies, or at least based on their misunderstanding of the Old Testament prophecies, they were expecting that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would, would go about things in a certain way. That they, they thought he would become a king, who would raise up an army and march into Jerusalem on a war horse and slay the Romans and take things over and set up a throne for himself in a palace? And what did Jesus do instead? Well, he marched into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey with little children around him singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And he didn't march in and and start slaying people. He did march in and turn over the tables in the temple because he was zealous for the worship of God, but he didn't slay anybody. That's for the second coming. But he came, and instead of bringing an army, he brought a group of disciples who were not very impressive to anybody, a group of fishermen with a, with a, a weird country accent from Galilee. And, and he came, and he went not to a throne, but to the cross to be crucified. Now, in light of that, as we look back at our Old Testaments, as we read Isaiah 53, for example, we just see it so plainly. Obviously, this was God's plan all along, was that God would come in the flesh and be crucified in our place for our sins, and on the third day rise from the dead victorious. And and in that, that he would fulfill uh, all of the law in terms of obeying it in our place, in terms of taking the curses for our disobedience, in terms of, of now bringing in people from all nations who don't have to convert to become part of the Jewish nation to come in, all of these things. It's called by Paul the mystery of the gospel. And it was there in the scriptures all along, but they didn't see it until it played out in Christ. And, and what we see here in Romans 11, well, uh, there's a lot that We see it plainly in Scripture, and you may see it one way in particular now, and one day when you see it play out, you may realize you you had it a little wrong, unless you totally agree with my interpretation, right? That's a joke. But all of that is just summed up here in verse 33, all the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And he's not just summing up what he said in Romans 11. He's also summing up what he said in Romans 9 and 10. And if you wonder about all of the things that he said in Romans 9 about election and reprobation and how hard it is to wrap our human minds around that, 
Well, it's summed up in the fact that God has his mind wrapped around it. And that's what we need to know. God gets it. God planned it. And not just that, but I am of the opinion that this is not just, these verses aren't just capping off Romans 9, 10, and 11. I think they're capping off the entire first half of Romans, all the way from chapter 1 all the way up to where we are now at the end of, of chapter 11, and the book of Romans is about to take a sharp turn in, in when we get to, to verse 1 of chapter 12. And, and all of this is just saying, after we have spent all of this time going through these incredibly deep profound and yet often very simple and straightforward doctrines of the gospel, here's, here's the response that we're to, to have. God is glorious. God knows what he's doing. God has this. That's where we are. And so let's, let's look at these things about God. Some of these you would call attributes of God. Some of these are just just ways of describing God. Let's look at the words that are used here from verses 33 through 35 and contemplate our God. That's what we're called to do today. Contemplate our God. He says in verse 33, first of all, oh, the depth of the riches. He says there's the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He has, first of all, this Riches. What kind of riches is it talking about? Well, with God, every kind of riches. God has every kind of riches. Psalm 50 says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And keep in mind that was written at a time when owning cattle was a big part of the way that you were rich. And it was written at a time also when the sacrifices of the Old Testament system were still in place as there were those who had in mind, well, I'm going to bring this incredible sacrifice out of my flock, and therefore, because I did that, God will owe me. Well, he already has everything. You're not giving God cattle that he didn't already own. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't just own the cattle on a thousand hills. He, he owns everything you have. He owns everything that you don't have. He owns all of the stuff, that uh, the flashy things that would draw our eyes away. I mentioned that I was uh, in, in the south this week. I flew into New Orleans and had to rent a car. And as I was leaving New Orleans in my rental car, I had a very uneasy interaction at an intersection with one of those Rolls-Royce SUVs. You've, you've probably seen those around, and I don't know how much they cost, half a million dollars, something like that. And I won't say that he almost hit me. But it was a very uneasy interaction. And I started having that, that thought, how much is this rental car, how much would I have to pay if this thing got destroyed? How much would I have to pay if my rental car destroyed that Rolls Royce? Thank God it didn't. But we see things like that and we just say, wow, there's somebody who has one object that is worth probably twice as much as our annual church budget. Uh, one object who is, that is beyond what almost any of us in here would, would make in a number of years. But just think about what God has. He already owns that car. He already owns all the rest of them. He, he owns not just the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns the Rolls Royces in a thousand garages of a thousand mansions, and he owns 
all the world that the mansions are in, and he owns all the universe that the world is in. God owns everything. But in particular here, the kind of riches that it's talking about, it's probably not talking about, well, just physical stuff in this world, although God already owns all of that and everything in our bank accounts and everything else. He owns it all, but the kind of riches it seems to be talking about here are the kind of riches that overflow to us who believe in Christ. He's talking about the kind of riches that are not the temporary riches of this world. This world has all kinds of flashy things that moth and rust destroy and that thieves break in and steal. God owns all those things, but in Christ, he gives us better riches than those things. In Christ, what he gives us is things that can be taken past the grave. So that whether you have a lot or a little in this life, that you can trust in the riches of Christ as your treasure. He says in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. As we set our hopes on God, as we realize that whether we have a lot or a little in this life, that that's what God has chosen as our portion for us to use for his glory, as we think about that, we need to remember the kinds of riches that are described as overflowing to us who believe in Christ. We have, according to Romans 9.23, the riches of his glory given to us. According to Ephesians 1.17, we receive from Christ the riches of his grace. According to Romans 2.4, we have the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. According to Colossians 2.2, we have the riches of full assurance. According to Ephesians 3.8, we have all of the unsearchable riches of Christ that are given to us. All of these things Jesus bought on the cross for us and gives us for all eternity. Ultimately, it's all going to come down to seeing Jesus face to face with beholding his glory and being satisfied in God himself for all eternity. That's the riches that we will shout in joy forever and ever that we have received to know and enjoy and glorify God. Oh, the riches. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom. So let's think about God's wisdom. God's wisdom has to do with being smarter than us. Wisdom, now the way that that this word wisdom is used, it's used just like most words are. It's used in different ways in different places depending on the context, but it can talk about intelligence. You could be talking about someone's IQ or other kinds of intelligence like their EQ or any other kind of Q that somebody might come up with about different kinds of intelligence. Well, God has them all. I I have uh, heard it said before, though, that if you have a degree from an Ivy League college, it can be a big boost in getting your first job. And then after that, you know what you have to do? You have to show that you're not just smart enough to get through school, but that you're smart enough to apply those things to the real world and have an actual record of not just head knowledge, but wisdom. And that's really 
probably the, the kind of wisdom that it's talking about with God here, not just his intelligence, although that is infinite and incomprehensible, but also the way that his intelligence is applied to every situation that he always knows the right thing to do and does it perfectly. God's wisdom is infinite. If you're smart in your head, it's valuable, but applying it to the real world is more valuable, and God does that. He's all of those things. It's especially talking here about the wisdom that has been demonstrated in all of these verses that came before in the book of Romans. All of the plan of God's salvation of sinners that's been played out in Jesus Christ and described to us in chapters 1 through 11. Here's what it says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about this. It says, the word of the cross is folly. That's the opposite of wisdom. Folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified." a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you want to know the wisdom of God more deeply than anywhere else, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to the cross it is in the wisdom of God that in one place and in one person and in one act of righteousness that God could bring together the fullness of his justice upon our sin with the fullness of his grace toward us to forgive our sin. It all comes together in Christ and in his sacrifice on the cross. If you want to know the depth of wisdom, look to Jesus. Look to his sacrifice for your sins on the cross. Don't look for wisdom in all the other kinds of places that your heart is drawn off to in the flesh. There are all kinds of ways that we could try to prove that we are smart. All kinds of ways that we could be convinced that guy over there doesn't make any sense, but he sounds confident, and so he must be way smarter than me. Look to the cross. Here's the way it's summed up in Ephesians 3. We prayed through this just a minute ago, but it says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You hear those riches? That riches language? And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know what it's saying there? God's wisdom in saving sinners has as one of its primary purposes God demonstrating his glory to angels and demons. Isn't that interesting? God is demonstrating in the wisdom of the cross 
and of salvation of sinners by making us born again by the Spirit, he is showing off, and rightly so, as the only one who has the right to show off. He is showing off the beauty of his wise plans to save us. And it says this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amazing, amazing. God's knowledge, it says, he, the riches of, uh, excuse me, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. What is that talking about? Well, it's really closely related to wisdom. It, it's got a lot of overlap with wisdom. It involves all of the smarts that are discussed in wisdom, and in fact, it's probably talking more specifically about those smarts. The, the wisdom of God would probably be mostly speaking of God's ability to know and to, to do all of the wise things, to play things out in the right wise ways, and his knowledge would have to do with his perfect understanding. He gets it. He knows everything. He sees everything, and he understands everything. He understands every part of everything. Every math class you've ever taken, God got it long before anybody had ever written a math book. Everything. God is able to put together every bit of knowledge because he is the progenitor of it all. He is the creator of all things. Everything that is true has always existed as true in his own mind from eternity past. God gets it. God has knowledge that's above all of us. It, it says in Colossians 2, 2, that our hearts may be encouraged, being knitted together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now think about that. All of the wisdom and the knowledge of God are hidden in Christ. That's what I was saying just a second ago. If you want to know how smart is God, look at the cross. Look to Jesus. If you want to be wiser than all of your teachers, what does the Bible say? Fear the Lord. You need to look to Christ for wisdom. Don't be led astray by people who want to convince everyone that they are smart and knowledgeable. I'm not saying that there's no value to being smart. There's a lot of value to it. I'm not saying that there's no value to being knowledgeable. There's a lot of value to it. Pursue it. But don't be among those whose goal is to show those things off. And don't be led astray by those who are constantly seeking to show those things off. If you want to know the wisdom of God, it's not found in the fact that someone can come in and tell you how many books they read recently and how many quotes of John Calvin they can come up with on the fly and how many different ways of describing the decrees of God they can list out. The wisdom of God comes in knowledge of God, personal knowledge of God through Jesus Christ in the cross. There are... I'll leave it for now. There are lots of people in this world who've taken seminary classes, and that's good. 
But somebody is always bringing up to you all the time that they should be in charge because of that. That's not the wisdom of God. There's lots of people in this world who have studied Greek and Hebrew. But if you come across people, you come, usually you come across them on the internet or on TV or somewhere else like that. People who are trying to use Greek and Hebrew to tell you I'm the smart guy and therefore you can't trust your English Bibles because of what I have told you about my deep secret knowledge of the original languages, do not trust that person. Do not trust that person. Don't be that person either. (laughs) It's a temptation for many. But here's what we're to do. We're to treasure Christ, not to treasure looking smart. We're to treasure the wisdom of Christ. Whether we are talking about the the way that we would demonstrate ourselves to Christians or whether we're talking about the way that we would demonstrate ourselves to the world. Many Christians put a great amount of value in the hope that one day they or other Christians can come across to the unbelieving world as smart. You know what? It's never going to be the case. It's never going to be the case because we preach folly according to the worldly view. We preach Christ crucified. And if we are presenting ourselves in such a way that the world comes away and says, that was the smartest person I have ever heard, and therefore I must repent. It's just not going to (laughs) happen. If you do want people to repent and believe... That's not saying you can't know the smart guy things. It's not saying you can't know the apologetic arguments, but the message of the wisdom of God that saves souls is the message of the cross. That is the wisdom of God in Christ. And you know what? There's all kinds of of smart things that we could know. Jim Neuheiser, who is, is one of the pastors in fire, he's also a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. And he, he shared this week that he sometimes, in, you know, in the faculty break room at RTS, he will overhear conversations between godly, godly men, conversations that he just does not understand. <laughs> and he, he said that there are certain things that he would think to himself, yes, I've read the books on that, I've studied that, and then he goes in there and he hears those guys talking about it and he says, I have no idea what they're talking about. That's all right. There, there is a level of conversation, too, that would be above those guys' heads, and there would be a level of conversation that's above those next guys' heads, and on up and on up. But you know what? You never get to some level of conversation that is above God's head. All of the smartest conversations you have ever heard about the Bible or anything else, God is looking down at us as little children discussing things that he can chuckle you know how it is when a little kid, they're not necessarily wrong about something, but just the way it comes out of their mouth, you just, you just turn around and you, you know, you know what I'm talking about? That's how God is to us. Don't, don't set yourself up with some kind of a pride in God's sight or in the sight of the people of God. God is the one with all the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge, and God always gets it. Every subject that's ever been contemplated, every subject man has ever figured out, 
every subject man has never even figured out that the subject exists. God already gets it. And let's make this personal. God has a full knowledge of you. Have you ever thought about that? I hope you have. If you're a Christian, you have. God has a full and thorough and perfect knowledge of you. He knows all of the things that you know about yourself. He knows all of the things that you have forgotten about yourself. He knows all the things that you never knew about yourself. He knows the full history of your life, the full history of your family, the full history of your lineage. He knows the full history of your future. It hasn't played out yet, but it's written in his book. He knows all of the actions that you do in public. He knows all of the actions that you do or have ever done in secret. God knows every word that you've ever spoken in public. God knows every word that you have ever muttered under your breath that you thought no one else heard. God doesn't just know your actions. He doesn't just know your words. God knows the depth of your heart. He knows the depth of your heart all the way on the inside. He knows every thought of your mind, the thoughts that you thought on purpose and the thoughts that just came there. He knows every feeling of your emotions. He knows every desire of your will. Sometimes people will say, well, only God knows my heart as a way to kind of defend themselves, but it's a little bit terrifying when you think about it. God knows my heart. God is a righteous judge. God will perfectly punish every sin of all time, not just the ones done in the body, not just the ones spoken with the mouth, but the sins of the heart. He sees it all. He knows it all. And to be a just God, he must and will fully punish it all. But isn't that the beauty of the cross of Jesus too? In the fullness of God's knowledge of our own hearts, every sin that we have ever committed, for us whose faith is in Jesus Christ, it was put on Jesus at the cross. The ugliness of our heart sins that God knew perfectly, it was counted as Jesus's. And he died, suffered under the wrath of the Father, put it away forever, and separates that sin from us as far as the east is from the west and does not count, us to, count it to us any longer. And in its place gives us all of the blessings of the righteousness of Christ himself. That's the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God toward us who are sinners. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City who just recently passed away, he said in his book on marriage, he said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. That's the knowledge of God. And God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he speaks of God's judgments. We have the riches of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. And then he says, how unsearchable 
are his judgments. Now, the word judgment, it sounds like a judge standing there at the, uh, in the courtroom saying guilty or not guilty, and God is that kind of judge for sure. But this is, seems to be speaking of the kinds of judgments of a ruler over a nation. You think of, of Moses, whose job was to judge the people in their disputes, but also to rule and to lead the nation, or the, the, uh, the leaders throughout the book of Judges. The kind of judgments that it seems to be speaking of here is, here is how things should go. I judge that this is the policy I will set. This is the way that I will lead. God is the one who has the perfect decisions. He leads everything that he's made in his providence. He has perfect control over everything and everything that comes to pass. And in his decisions, all of them are perfect. We may not understand them, and that's what it says there. How unsearchable are his judgments? When we start to think to ourselves, well, I'm going to get exactly why God allowed or did everything that has happened in this world. No, his judgments are unsearchable. We're not going to get it all, and that's all right. It says in Job 5, verse 9, God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Or in Job 9.10, God does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Believer in Christ, you can rest assured that God's unsearchable judgments are working together for your good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Unbeliever, come to Jesus. God's ways and his judgments are unsearchable. That's the next thing, his judgments and then his ways. How inscrutable, inscrutable his ways. Now, what are ways? Well, it's the way you go. Another way that you could translate this word is paths or roads. The, the path that God has chosen to take. And it says that this is inscrutable. It means it is beyond searching out. It is beyond tracing. Now, these, these paths, if you were a skilled hunter, then you could search out the path of an animal in the woods. And if you had a trained police dog, then you might be able to find the path of a criminal who's on the run, even if he's trying to cover his tracks. But nobody can search out the paths of the Lord. His ways are inscrutable. Now that's one reason why we ought not to worry ourselves about being in what some people call the center of God's perfect will. Okay? There, there are those who just really, really lose sleep over the question of, am I making decisions that will put me at the very center of God's perfect paths for the future? Well, this says right here, you don't get to know those. You don't get to know those. What has God told us is his will. Well, I mean, there are certain things about the future that he's told us. Jesus is going to come back and rule forever and ever. He's going to judge the quick and the dead. He's going to raise us to eternal life through faith in him. There's a lot of things that we know about the future, but 
But there's also a lot of things between now and then that we don't get to see the plan for. There, there is nothing in Scripture that says, hey, you, hey, you in particular, here's exactly the best possible course of your life. Make these decisions. It, he has just not chosen to reveal things to us that way. He has not chosen to make his paths able to be searched out. What he has done, though, what he has done is he has shown you his perfect commands. He's called us to trust him, and as we trust him, to obey him. You've got to trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Did you know that? Ever heard that? Don't worry about searching out God's perfect paths. God has it taken care of, and he's told you, trust and obey. That's his will. That's his will. So he has inscrutable paths. He's revealed some things. He hasn't revealed other things. If you want to know the way that you should walk, here's what it says in Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's paths, that's up to God. It's all laid out in the brightness of his knowledge and perfect ways. He gets it. We don't need to get it. But what he does is he takes his word over to our path. And his word, as we open it up daily, meditate on what it says, pray, obey, God uses this as a light on our path. And that's where we need to be. You may not be satisfied with the path that Scripture lays out for us. You might be convinced that you can reach a certain level of spirituality where you can also figure out the path that God has planned, but you can't. So praise Him for the depth of His knowledge, for the depth of His wisdom. Praise Him that His paths are inscrutable and follow Him in His word. And then we also have in verse 34, the mind of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? This is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 40, and I'll just read Isaiah 40, verse 13 through 15. He says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on a scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust." Well, he puts us in our place, doesn't he? We think to ourselves, boy, I'm going to build a big, important thing for myself. And God looks and says, the nations are like dust on the scales. That's how big God is. How can we know the mind of God? Well, who has known the mind of God? Now, you, you might think to yourself that you are very good at holding your cards close to the vest. You may think that you're very, very good at people not being able to read what's going on in your head. What's funny is that sometimes, even when we start to think that, you get these advertisements on the Internet. And I've heard people say, they are using the microphone on my phone because things that I have only said in secret are popping up as ads Or people who are even convinced that the internet can read their mind somehow. You know what's the reality, though? We're actually not as hard to figure out as we think we are. 
a careful observer, and those people on the internet, they get paid pretty well to be very careful observers. <laughs> a careful observer can figure out a lot of things that you're thinking, even when you think you're keeping them hidden. Satan can figure out a lot of things that you're thinking, even though he can't read your mind. He certainly can figure out a lot more than you would expect by watching you very closely. Your mother can do that. There's people in your lives who can do that. My point is, though, our minds are not as hard to figure out as we might convince ourselves that they are. God, though, who can know his mind? Who can know his mind? Now, God in his grace has given us right here this thousand-plus-page book of his thoughts. And we can know these things of the mind of the Lord that he has revealed to us in perfection by his Spirit. The Spirit has known the mind of the Lord because he is God. And he searches these things out and he has breathed out these words to us. So I don't mean to say that we just should claim that we don't know anything about what God thinks because God has told us lots of what he thinks. But at the same time, God has also told us infinitely more, or has, excuse me, has also not told us infinitely more than he has told us. And we need to rest content in the fact that God's mind is beyond our understanding. We're to understand what he has told us. We're to think deeply about what he's told us. We are to understand God as deeply as we possibly can, but part of that understanding is to also know that there will always be things about the mind of God that will always be beyond our ability to know. And that's good. That's the kind of God I want. Not the kind of God who is so small to just figure out. We have in Romans 8, 26, verses 28, some, some beautiful teaching about this. It doesn't just mean, if we say, well, we can't know the mind of God, it doesn't mean let go and let God. It doesn't mean give up and just say, well, God, God's going to do everything. I don't, I'm not going to do anything. Here, here's what it says for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. I'm just going to sum that up and say, we don't know the mind of God, but God knows us, and he knows what he's doing, and he's going to carry us through. We trust him. And then what about his counsel? Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Let me just say this. You and I need counselors. You and I need counselors. By counselors, what do I mean? I mean other human beings who can help us to evaluate ourselves, who can help us to evaluate what's going on in our lives, who can help us to evaluate the right way to go, the right way to handle things. Now, there are such a thing as wicked counselors. The Bible warns us not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so I think there is great value when you're seeking counsel 
to seek counsel from someone who knows and loves the Lord and is seeking to apply not just worldly wisdom, but, but more so coming from a starting place of saying, here is what is the ultimate truth about us in Scripture. There is great, great value to that. But I just want, my, my big point here is we all need counselors. Needing a counselor is not a sign of weakness. Recognizing that other people have wisdom to pour into your life is a sign of wisdom yourself. And we need to be counselors to each other as well. Anytime that you have an intentionally helpful conversation with someone, you are being a counselor. And anytime that in those intentionally helpful conversations that your mind is saying, what scripture can I bring to this person to help them? You are being a biblical counselor. And so seek to do that and seek to be counseled. Now, we also know that it's not just us lowly church people here in this little church in Matawan, New Jersey. You, you look at the greatest, most powerful leaders in the world, and what are they surrounded by? Counselors, advisors. You look at God, how many advisors does he need on his staff? Zero. Zero. Now, a, a president of a country he may need somebody to come in and, and somebody who's an expert on economic policy to come and fill him in on the gaps where he doesn't understand these things and to help point him in the right direction of what he should do. Or he may need somebody who can come in and, and, and advise him about the current state of affairs in Sudan and the warring factions there and what the, the, the response of the country should be. All kinds of things. God doesn't need that. God is already the expert on everything, perfectly. Already knows exactly what to do. This goes back to the riches of his wisdom. It goes back to the riches of his knowledge. But God doesn't need counselors. He works perfectly according to what? The counsel of his own will. He's the only one who can do that. And it says in Ephesians 1.11... All of this, as I said, it's topping off what's come before in the book of Romans about God's salvation of us. It says in Ephesians 1.11, we have been predestined, those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. When God needs advice, where does he go? His own will. He's already got it. And in that wisdom, in that counsel, it is perfect for him to save sinners like you and me. Amazing. And then finally, God's need of nothing. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And this may be referencing Job 41.11 where it says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Remember what I said earlier about how God already owns the cattle on a thousand hills? God, in, in that passage, was speaking about the fact that there were many people who would just go about their lives however they felt like, ignoring God throughout most of their lives, and then occasionally show up to the temple with a bunch of cattle to sacrifice, as though because of that, God should then turn and forgive their sin for all eternity and guide them in the blessings that he had promised for faithfulness, even though they had no heart for him whatsoever. 
their, their feeling was, well, if we bring our cattle, if we give a sacrifice, then God's going to owe us. And, and that is really the way that every religion in the world works, except for Christianity. All of those pagan religions that were around Israel in those days, that's how they worked. It was, hey, you feed the God and he'll be good to you. And sometimes people approach the true God as though that must be the right attitude toward him. If I feed the God, then he'll be good to me. If I do things for God, then he's going to owe me one. If I'm a good enough person, then I'm going to deserve the rewards that he has. This says that is not the case with God. This God is so much bigger than anyone's conception of a God and how a God ought to operate. He's a God who cannot be given to that he might be repaid. Or a God that you can't first give to him that he should then repay that person. That's a better way of putting it. If you come to God and you say, God, I'm going to do this for you if you then do this for me. Just imagine, what if you walked up to Jeff Bezos with a $5 Wawa card, said, I got this for you. And then you expect that he's going to come invite you to live in his guest house. It's not going to happen, but you know what? You would actually be adding $5 to Jeff Bezos' net worth if you handed it to him. How much are you adding to God's net worth in what you give to him? Nothing. What is added to God by every tithe that you have ever put in the offering plate or in the offering box? Nothing is added to God. I'm not telling you not to tithe, but don't think you're making God owe you one. You're not. What's ever been added to God by the greatest act of service that you've ever done for God? Nothing. Again, I'm not telling you not to serve God. We just have to have a right conception of the God that we're serving. He was just fine before he ever created anything. He needed nothing. And now that he has created us in all things, he still needs nothing. It is gracious that he has made us exist and it has made it possible for us to serve him. But we're not adding something to him. Here's what it says in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the whole world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Don't think that God automatically owes you something just because you're a human being or just because you're a high-quality human being, which, yes, all of you are. Don't think that God automatically owes you something because you have resisted a particular temptation to sin that you didn't resist before. Don't think that God owes you something because you had personal acts of holiness and religious devotions that you brought to him. Don't think that God owes you something because you have served your fellow human beings in love. Don't think that God owes you something because you did an act of service to God. Jesus told this parable about that. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? 
and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So here's the question. If we're not going to be able to make God owe us something, how are we going to be saved? How are you going to have your sins forgiven if you can't make God forgive your sins? How are you going to go to heaven if you can't convince God that you deserve it? Well, it's by God's grace alone. Grace alone. Only by his freely giving, not by my hour making him indebted. It's by his free gift. It says in Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the people who deserved it, not for the people who made God owe him one. For the ungodly, Christ died. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus has done the work. Jesus has done it. We give, we serve, we love, we, we seek holiness. We, we want to walk after God, but not because we have some sort of a reciprocal relationship, but because he's already done the 100% to give to us. And we are in gratitude for his grace. That's where we are. I'll just end with this in Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being the God who's described here, who is higher than us, whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We thank you for the infinite depth of your riches and wisdom and knowledge and judgments, the inscrutability of your ways. We thank you for your perfect mind that is beyond our knowledge. We thank you for having the perfect counsel of your will, for having all things and needing nothing from us, and yet showing us grace in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would lead us to Christ in repentance, in faith, and in walking after him in gratitude. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.